This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Spring 2018, Episode 8. Today we're talking about Darling the Franks, Episode 19, and we have got a lot to talk about. We got a huge peek into the backstory for the Plantation Society and for Dr. Franks. Um, it's important to remember that we still don't have the complete story, uh, but we learned enough that it narrows our story possibilities. One of the things we have been trying to guess at for a long time is what Dr. Franks wants, or what his goal may be. We know he's up to something, but what? We've extrapolated a lot of things from his decisions surrounding the 13th Squad that indicate some kind of personal interest in them, and we then assume that a lot of the differences between that squad and all other squads are a result of his influence. We know he directly suggested the beach vacation, we know he stopped whatever normal protocol is followed for the onset of puberty, and we know that he kept the 13ers isolated in that month after the Grand Crevasse battle. We also know he wanted some of these decisions kept secret from the Ape Council, and it's clear that he does not explain his reasoning to Nana and Hachi. We infer that the unique Frank's designs must also be his doing, which indicates an interest in the 13th Squad even before Zero Two joined them. We also know that he stopped normal procedures from affecting Hero twice in his youth, and that he was quite aware of Hero and Zero Two meeting and trying to flee when they were younger. So we have guessed that either his interest in Zero Two or Hero or both is somehow contributory to why he meddles directly in Squad 13 in a way that he does not do elsewhere. Because of the secrecy that we know about, we infer that something about what he wants from them differs from what the Ape Council may want from them. Also, since Squad 13 enjoys a level of autonomy and individuality that the rest of society does not seem to possess, um, and we know very well that Ape intentionally guides society this way, we also infer that Dr. Franks may be opposed to Ape philosophically, or at least in some ways. It's tempting to guess that he is guiding Squad 13 to a place where they can exist in opposition to that Ape Council. However, he has been given a mad scientist character archetype from the beginning, aided by the way that they choose to represent him visually. Several comments he's made throughout the series suggest that he cares about the science and his data and does not care about people individually, that he is amoral at best. This seems especially true in the full episode flashback of 13, when we see the experimentation on Zero Two and the callous way that he talks about taking away their memories. Now, Ape makes comments about Dr. Frank's spoiling Zero Two as though it is a long pattern, and his comment about Hero from his youth indicates that he was going to keep an eye on his development. But if it is the interest and preferred treatment of a scientist protecting his experiment, then Hero and Zero Two and Squad 13 could be viewed uh, not as some subversive force that he's secretly guiding, but as a pet project, a group of people whose lives he is manipulating for his own curiosity and regardless of how it may affect them. On the other hand, 
His comments about making Zero Two's wish come true and his advice to Hero about what he should do if he always wants to stay beside her both indicate an interest in them as people rather than as data points. His comments to Hero in episode 15 almost certainly influenced him to act, and if that was the goal, then it indicates an understanding of Hero and his relationship at a personal level. These seem like unnecessary moments and comments to make if you are merely a neutral bystander. Which, then, is the real Dr. Franks? Most of today's episode is about Dr. Franks, starting with the point he gets involved with Ape and leading us to a critical moment in his more recent past. It does not show us everything about him. Um, there are gaps between the last thing we see in his memories and his appearance in Zero Two's memories, and there's another gap between him erasing those memories and then showing up with Zero Two at the Plantation 13 uh, in Episode 1. So we should keep in mind that we still don't have a complete picture. But we will try to better understand the actions of his that we've seen until now based on what we learned this time, um, and that will be the common thread to the way that we examine today's episode. Along the way, we will also gain some expository information about how society changed into the plantation-based one. Uh, we also have a few scenes that show some progression in the present, as the squad reacts to what has been done to Mitsuru and Kokoro. This eventually leads them to make a decision together, and as this is played against the backdrop of Dr. Franks's journey to his own past decision, we should assume that the parallel is intended. Right at the end, we also get what I think is a strong suggestion that we might have a happy ending, uh, at least for some of our crew. Finally, there are things we learn this time that make an analogy I put forth way back in episode 5 suddenly seem relevant again. To tie this together, I have assembled a very lengthy speculation at the end of this video trying to link almost all of our unknowns to one another. So, to get there, We'll have to get the rest of it started. The episode begins today with a conversation between Dr. Franks and the remaining Ape Council. Last time, we wondered if there would be fallout for Dr. Franks in the same way as there was for Mitsuru, Kokoro, and Nana. Though it appears there is no punishment awaiting him exactly, we can tell from this conversation that Ape acting without consulting him is a break from the normal way that they operate. So it may be that their reaction to what happened isn't to penalize him so much as to cut him out of the loop. To what extent, we don't know, but this conversation suggests at least a little loss of standing or influence uh, for our doctor. And uh, he is upset about it. He refers to, of all the heavy-handed measures to take, uh, which we will learn is referencing the memory wiping of Mitsuru and Kokoro. He will also later ask them why they even felt the need to do so. This seems like a different doctor than the one who wiped Hiro and Zero Two's memories in their youth, like it was no big deal, right? Yes, Ape is screwing up his experiment about the development of humanity's original reproductive instincts, but in the conversation we saw with Hachi after the Nine's visit, it seemed that he had given up on that test anyway. Why then should it bother him to have Kokoro and Mitsuru subjected to that? In fact, he contends with Ape about the effect it may have on the squad, saying if they keep doing this, there is no guarantee the children will remain obedient. They argue that they didn't do anything to the rest of the Squad 13, um, but I think this demonstrates a difference in understanding between them. 
Ape appears to believe their obedience isn't threatened because they leave most of the squad alone, but Dr. Franks realizes that manipulating like this is going to encourage the squad to push back. He knows the children consider themselves a unit, a team, a family, uh, not an arbitrary collection of individuals. They will see this as aggression against them all, but Ape doesn't appear to see it that way. In fact, it seems that they are altering the memories of the entire parasite population to rid the parasites of all unneeded emotions and memories. This is probably what is happening in the bird's nest camp that involves all of the parasites being called up in order. It occurs to me that if Naomi didn't actually die back there in episode one, we might find her wandering around here somewhere. With her memories of the squad gone, no doubt, but I wonder what would happen if someone calls her by that name. Now, evidently, this parasite-wide mind wipe is the thing that they neglected to consult our doctor about, and rather than tell him why they kept him out of the loop, they tell him simply to behave for now. After all, he also wished to see this plan come to fruition. After Ape disconnects, though, and Dr. Franks is alone with his thoughts and the audience, he remarks that Ape doesn't hesitate to use forceful means to achieve their ends. This sounds like criticism to me. He disapproves of their action of wiping the memories, not the fact that he was left out of the decision. And then he admits that he is no different, and he squeezes his mechanical hand to emphasize the emotional content of this admission to himself. This act seems to be what initiates his recollection of how he came to need a mechanical arm at all, which begins with his involvement with Ape back in his younger days before Plantation Society was even a thing. This is where we will join him after the credits. We are presented with further details to support Dr. Franks as the archetypal mad scientist, his cluttered room, an unkempt appearance, and misanthropic demeanor. He is summoned before the Chancellor, which I think implies that he works for a research university. The conversation begins by broaching the subject of Ape, a group that Dr. Franks thinks of as an upstart, before the Chancellor reveals that he has basically accepted Dr. Franks working for them on his behalf. Dr. Franks was not even asked, and we soon learn the reason why. The Chancellor wants to be rid of him, as he is involved in illegal experiments, including cloning, and has roused the community against him. He's a bad look for them, in other words. They quibble a bit about this, but the Chancellor makes the root of the issue clear. It is a matter of ethics, while Dr. Franks counters that he is producing results. This encapsulates his sense of responsibility as a scientist to us. Results matter, ethics do not. The Chancellor doesn't deny the results part, but admits that the doctor terrifies him. While Ape recognizes Dr. Franks' brilliance, I have no doubt that his lack of scruples is also what drew their attention. Now, I rather like this situation as the origin for the doctor's involvement with Ape. It means that he didn't seek them out, they sought him out. They already existed and had their own agenda before he entered the scene. He didn't really even choose to join them when they offered, but he went along with it, suggesting that his loyalty is to his own continued ability to do his work, not because of any shared purpose between him and Ape. And yet, even before he was involved with them, he had caused consternation in the scientific community. He was a heathen, as the Chancellor puts it. While this might make he and Ape well-matched, it suggests that neither of them acquired their viewpoint from the other. Each had their own idea of priority before they were conjoined. Dr. Franks isn't some founding member of these future dystopian overlords, but is more like a mercenary of science, and Ape's lack of ethics is convenient to his desires. Now once we learn that Dr. Franks is going to join these upstarts, we get a brief look at their backstory. They are fundamentally a group of scientists, it seems, but ones shrouded in anonymity. No known origins or nationalities. 
A lot of stuff about Ape will be discussed at the end in Speculation, so we're not going to pour over all of it now, um, but we will explore the science parts as we go through, um, so that that doesn't bog us down once we get to the Speculation part. It appears the central group of seven that we've been calling the Ape Council is known as the Lamarck Club. This is another external reference, so I will try to guess at what is being invoked. Near as I can tell, this is probably referencing Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, um, a French biologist who was kind of a forerunner of Darwin's, and he proposed an early version of evolutionary theory. Darwin's later theories would win out, uh, but one of the key differences between them is that Lamarck thought that which traits were passed to successive generations depended on whether or not an organism used those traits during their lifetime. So, for example, moles not using their eyesight by living in darkness would lose their sight over time, and they would pass this disuse and diminished eyesight to their offspring, uh, who would then use them even less in their diminished form and pass that on, until eventually, moles were blind. In other words, use it or lose it. Now, though Lamarckism, as it's called, fell out of favor some time ago, it has a modern echo in the study of epigenetics. Epigenetics encompasses several different things, um, but to put it really simply, it involves getting different results from the same DNA, and these different results are inheritable. The way in which this is related to Lamarck's ideas is that the same DNA could potentially express differently depending on environmental conditions, turning the expression of genes on or off as a reaction to external factors. The reason I've singled that aspect of epigenetics and Lamarck's theories out is that today's episode revolves partially around genetic study of Claxosaurs, and it begins to explain Zero-2's origins as well. Claxosaurs appear to be rather genetically similar, despite showing up in a huge variety of shapes and sizes. Meanwhile, Zero-2 may very well be mostly Claxosaur, and yet has been coaxed over time into something very human-seeming. Invoking Lamarck may be a hint that despite how different various Claxosaur iterations look, they might all fundamentally be the same kind of thing, including the Claxosaur Princess and Zero-2. Since we now know that Hero is starting to express traits which seem Claxosaur-like, uh, the reverse of Zero-2, basically, this may be a low-key hint that humans and Claxosaurs are different expressions of the same basic DNA. Now, we'll table more thought on that until speculation. Um, Ape's breakthrough that put them on the world stage actually had nothing to do with biology, but the mining and use of magma. By making magma reserves accessible and all-encompassing, they appear to have solved civilization's basic limiting factor, energy. There are a huge number of technologies and industries and quality of life improvements that would already exist in today's world except for the limitation of energy and its cost. A lot of developments we take for granted in our society right now only exist because of the incredible concentrated energy of fossil fuels, something else we had to figure out how to dig up from the Earth and utilize. While it is beyond the scope of what I do here to interpret these series and how they may reflect on our own society, it's not a stretch to imagine that magma energy extraction in this world is meant to recall fossil fuel consumption in our own. The visual use of pump jacks especially implies this parallel to me. Anyway, this breakthrough in energy is accompanied by both an explosion in progress and an ape's influence on the world stage. Something similar would no doubt happen to a company today that figured out a cheap way to achieve cold fusion, um, assuming that they could monopolize this uh, technology. Apes' rise in power is therefore not that far-fetched. They would be expected to have a lot of sway and a lot of cold hard cash. 
But of course, Dr. Franks doesn't appear to be in the energy business at all. Neither is the person he meets when he shows up to an ape facility, a woman named Karina Milsa. These details, along with the Lamarck Club reference, is showing Ape's hand. The magma energy is a means and not an end. Karina Milsa fangirls Dr. Franks for a bit, helping us understand that despite his lack of ethics, his work is still recognized and lauded by scientific peers. Karina, for her part, appears to be accomplished enough to be on Dr. Franks' radar as well. Her fame is related to regenerative telomere medicine. So here is another little science detour. Telomeres are basically the end parts of chromosomes um, and are a repeating sequence that act as a buffer for the rest of the DNA. When cells divide, a little bit of the ends of the chromosomes is lost. But thanks to telomeres, this loss doesn't affect the main part of the DNA, protecting the genes from being lost. However, as cells continue to divide, more and more of the telomere is lost until eventually the buffer is gone or close to gone and the cells either stop dividing or they kill themselves. Because of this, most organisms have a limit to how many times their cells can divide before they have decreased function. A lot of the conditions that we associate with aging or old age are actually due to the inevitable shortening of telomeres. Telomere length is therefore a type of fuse in an organism a normal range of lifespan after which they can expect to have decreased function in their cells and all the potential complications from that. But telomeres can be restored to a certain degree. Um, a lot of cancers actually work this way. They are effectively immortal because they can continually restore their telomeres and continue to divide forever. That runaway division and growth can create tumors or release abnormal cells throughout a body, which is bad news for the host. But of course, if you could regenerate the telomeres of your normal cells without invoking a runaway effect like cancer, you might theoretically create a type of biological immortality. You see where this is going, right? This is no doubt the reason that Karina Milsa has been brought on board. Regenerative telomere medicine is already a step on the way to biological immortality, and this goal is revealed to us in the next bit when Dr. Franks receives his apparently generous funding. Magma energy appears to have some extra property to it that puts immortality within reach, and this is the cause for which these various scientists have been assembled. Skipping forward in time a bit, we see the moment that the research has become a success, as they have a test subject that shows no sign of aging. The other researchers are understandably happy, but Dr. Frank seems morose. Karina notices and questions him about his mood, and Dr. Franks reveals that he suspects that humanity might lose their reproductive functions in exchange for immortality. Why he suspects that seems less to do with science, as she says, there's no evidence for it, and more to do with his intuition. For the very first time, we get a look inside Dr. Franks's personal outlook. He says that no matter how they improve themselves with science, they can't make up for the inherent frailty of their bodies and minds. Then he gets downright philosophical about immortality. More than anything, it strips us of all beauty. What exactly he means by this is up for debate, or what he even considers beauty in the first place, um, but if you remember the pervasive cherry blossom and transient beauty thing, this seems like invoking the inverse. If things which are transient are all the more beautiful for their fleeting nature, then perhaps permanent things are all the less beautiful for not fleeting. However, he won't go so far as to say that it is wrong for humans to achieve immortality. 
He says instead that he has always wanted to know man's pinnacle and limit as an organism. This is the first time we've ever had Dr. Franks admit something he wants, a goal that he would like to see achieved. Because of this, it seems he's willing to entertain immortality as a means to this end. As he says, we might still find that answer in mankind's evolutionary process post-immortality. This makes me think of the second part of Lamarck's theory of evolution. I mentioned the use it or lose it idea already. The other part was Lamarck believed that organisms trended toward becoming more complex over time. That there was basically some force that caused every creature to try to become increasingly complicated and more perfected throughout their lives, and then passed that progress on to their offspring. Humans sit at the top of that quest for perfection now, but they too should be moving toward a higher state. A pinnacle, if you will, to borrow Dr. Franks' term. But after considering that this pinnacle may be achieved post-immortality, Dr. Franks poses this additional bit of philosophy. Will we be able to call what we become human? Now, if you've been following my analyses all along, this should remind you of the question that Zero Two long ago that I frequently come back to. What is human to you people? I thought then that this could end up being one of the central questions of the series, um, which is an idea that we've revisited from time to time. To have Dr. Franks muse about the same concept at this point, even before all the immortality and plantations and Klaxosaur stuff happens, that just confirms for me that defining what is or isn't a feature of humanity is one of the key ideas that this series probably wanted to explore. Now after that, the progression is pretty straightforward. He's right about the loss of reproduction, but it seems a lot of people still opt for the treatment. That is its own kind of commentary, I suppose, valuing a static status quo over a changing but uncertain future. We can now assume that this is what the pouch over the lady's heart in episode 10 was. It's her ongoing immortality treatment. Aside from immortality, the boost from magma as a cheap energy source advanced society to the apex of material civilization, but begins to create a wider class divide as only the rich can afford to become immortal. The rich may have ceased reproduction, but they also don't die, so as the poor continue to reproduce, the population explodes. This is countered by a heavy childbirth tax. I am guessing it was so heavy that only the rich could really afford it, but the rich had largely stopped having children anyway. As Dr. Frank says, it was the first step toward mankind abandoning its procreative instincts. Now, look at what happens immediately. Rapid desertification in the southern parts of North America. That is, the land immediately becomes barren and inhospitable to life once humans themselves start to become largely infertile. As he says, people linked the cause to magma mining and were ignored, but that is the narrative in-universe reason for it. Thematically, we should recognize this as directly being caused by humanity's infertility. We've talked at length about the pervasive human myth of the land's fruitfulness being dependent on the leaders of men, something that the directly referenced Golden Bow points out repeatedly, showing us the beginning of Earth's surface changing the wasteland we've become familiar with at the exact moment that humanity started to give up fertility is no coincidence at all. Narratively, this suggests that the world may be able to be restored if magma mining is abandoned. Thematically, though, we should understand that the world will only be restored if humanity rekindles their own fertility and procreative instincts. This means something seemingly very insignificant, like Kokoro's former wish to have a baby, is actually critically, critically important. Thus, we come back to the present, where the squad's first step to righting the situation is taking place. 
we join the tail end of an argument between Fatoshi and Kokoro. Fatoshi is animated and obviously distraught, enough to attract Mitsuru's attention and he gets the story from Kokoro. Fatoshi apparently has told her that he doesn't want to be her partner anymore and that he's teaming up with Yukuno, leaving Kokoro and Mitsuru as a team by default. This speaks to some of what I talked about last time with Ape's potential naivete about the situation. They obviously gave Kokoro and Mitsuru memories that didn't involve them ever piloting together, putting them back into their original teams. It seems the rest of the squad has figured that out, and rather than point out that the teams are different now, they simply force it to happen again by having Fatoshi break their partnership up himself. When I watched this the first time, I assumed this was only creating a situation where the two of them would connect again. Um, Hero and Zero Two recovered their memories and rediscovered each other thanks to the connection process. Rigging their squad to make the same thing possible for Mitsuru and Kokoro seems like a logical next move. It took a pretty extreme situation for it to happen for Hero and Zero Two, granted, uh, but it's the only thing they know of that can work. But we later find out that Hiro intends to ask Papa and the Council to restore their memories. Like, that's plan A, while hoping that they can recover memories via connecting is more of a plan B. But Fatoshi set the team swap in motion even before they had decided to ask, before they ever get a yes or no or that's not possible. So is this really plan B? I'm inclined to believe that this is less about the restoring of memories and more about doing what they think is right. Fatoshi loves Kokoro and has been her partner and hoped they'd always be together. Then he lost her, to his mind, because she fell for Mitsuru and wanted to partner with him. The best possible scenario for him to get her back is for them to be partners again and for her to have no memory of the other guy and no feelings for him. It's like being given a second chance to win her over. A better chance, since he remembers what he did wrong before and what Mitsuru apparently did right. A different kind of character might be amazed at their luck, thinking of Ape as a kind of awesome but accidental wingman. That is why it's important for us to see that Fatoshi is the initiator of this change. Not Ikuno, not the squad as a whole, not Hachi with the numbers to prove that they were a better team the other way. No, it's Fatoshi destroying the situation in which he could get a second chance in order to put things back to where they were before Ape intervened. He's doing this regardless of whether or not Ape can or will restore memories. I was convinced of this due to his later outburst in the audience with Ape. Even if they never get their memories back, he is incensed at the wrongness of what was done and convinced of the rightness of having the two of them partner together. Despite how emotionally difficult it was for him, he was being genuine in his encouragement of the two in their wedding. They are a pair in his mind, hard as that may be to bear, and he defies the change that Ape inflicted on them by resetting their partnerships. He's going to make them a pair once again, even if they themselves don't remember. And they don't remember. The other half of their conversation here reveals that the squad has filled them in on what really happened, because of course they did. However, each confesses that they doubt they will develop those feelings for the other. Considering the early comment made about uh, removing unnecessary memories and emotions, should we assume that Kokoro and Mitsuru haven't just had their memories purged, but have gotten the emotion erasing treatments that the other parasites seem to be receiving? The one that Nana and Hachi once received? Each of them is pretty sedate during this conversation, uh, but it's not really a big enough sample size to guess that they have no emotions anymore. 
It seems likely to me though, that Ape would go ahead and do so, to eliminate all irregularities, as they put it. Of course, Nana's example proves that that isn't irreversible either, so stay tuned. We conclude this with Kokoro looking down at the ring on her fingers that she still wears. Perhaps it is only still there because Mitsuru made hers too tight, a tiny detail that may eventually have a key impact. Returning to the past, humanity is nearing the point where nearly everyone will complete the transition to immortality. More and more of the city skyline is composed of the orange-hued buildings that we assume probably exist because of magma energy adoption. The trend is obviously a full conversion to apes technology by mankind, and yet we learn that our doctor has not taken the plunge himself. Karina prompts him on this as they share a nice dinner. Both are dressed in evening wear, they're drinking wine, they got a lovely view of the city. It's a date, or at least the audience should be able to figure that out. Dr. Franks admits that he doesn't like having his body messed with. Quite the situational irony for one so involved in making the procedure a reality. Then he says that if he is forced to, uh, which I guess means forced to accept some form of immortality, he would much prefer to replace his body with a mechanical one. This is a clever bit of playing with the audience's expectations. We already know the future Dr. Franks has a lot of mechanical parts to his body. His statement here gives us a reason for them, which relieves us of our expectation that we will see something happen to him that required him to go mechanical. We can now reason that he is somewhat immortal like the rest, thanks to those mechanical parts, a choice he must have had to make sometime in the future. We stop bracing for some event in his backstory and accept this explanation. Not only does it set us up to be surprised at the later loss of his arm, it also helps us understand that the present day Dr. Franks did not opt for the treatment, that he likely still retains his original reproductive ability and instincts, something that was actually already foreshadowed for us back in episode one. Now Karina chides him a bit for being so noncommittal, suggesting he should think about his life and his future, and he counters that this is not his style. He turns the question on her instead, and she also is not planning on having the procedure. In her case, she has given thought to her life and future and concluded that she wants to have a child. Dr. Franks is surprised at this, assuming that she didn't have a partner. And we figure out that Karina here isn't asking him about his immortality or future plans out of friendly curiosity, but because she is hoping he might take the job. His inability to pick up on this at first is just another reinforcement of his characterization as mad scientist, as they are expected to be fairly deficient in social skills and relationships. He's actually a little bit bashful at figuring it out, which might be the best we can hope for from him. She seems pleased at the least. Then he concludes that she has terrible taste. You're probably right, doctor, but that is not how the heart works at all. Around this time, it appears that the desertification had spread around the globe, a worldwide crisis. And who should step in with a solution but Ape, presenting the plantations as humanity's ark. Controlling these arcs would obviously put even more of people's lives into Ape's hands, and they essentially became the leader of the whole world. Sounds like they know not to let a good crisis go to waste. It's almost like they expected things to go wrong, and then to get worse, as skipping forward, we witness the very first contact with Klaxosaurs. The fact that plantations existed first overturns the official story the kids were talking about during the beach episode. The first Klaxosaur attack was pretty large scale, it seems, attacking an ocean mining operation and then continuing on to landfall before being stopped by multiple nuclear strikes. 
These strikes ended up making half of Australia uninhabitable. I suppose that illustrates exactly why the development of the Franks was important. Can't very well deploy nukes every time these things show up. It also gives us an idea of how durable these things really are. And this was just the beginning of their activity. And they begin showing up everywhere, obviously drawn to mining operations. That is exactly what Hero wondered back in that earlier episode. Of course, humanity could hardly abandon magma mining at this point. Their immortality depended on it. The world's progress depended on it. The new plantations that would safeguard them against the expanding deserts of the world depended on it. There was no going back home again. There was only doubling down. The plantations turned into mobile anti-Klaxosaur fortresses, and humanity's migration from the surface into the plantations was sped up drastically, completing apes' control of the world. It appears the Klaxosaurs have kindled a new spark in our Doctor, as we catch him on his way out the door to examine a preserved Klaxosaur corpse. It seems he and Karina have been a thing in the interim, even getting ready to be married the very next week, but that does not make him hesitate at all. In fact, he suggests she just submit their registration without him if he's not back. He's kind of missing the point, I think, and he definitely misses this face that she is making. The truth is, she probably can't compete with the Klaxosaurus for his interest. He is enthralled by the corpse, and he notes that their bodies can be said to be both mechanical and organic. I suppose for someone who would prefer to be mechanical rather than undergo the immortality treatment, he may feel some sort of kinship here. He says that the Klaxosaur struck him as extremely beautiful. From this point on, probably even unto the present, Dr. Franks became fascinated by the Klaxosaurs. His research led him to uncover that the specimen contained the same XX chromosomes seen in human females. He says he didn't know what that indicated, but he had a bad feeling about it. As you can probably already guess, we're going to revisit that in speculation. All I'll say now is that I suspect that this is why the name of the robots are Franks with two X's rather than Frank, which we earlier saw is his actual name. It's probably also why we have a pair of X's in the title and a lot of the other visual motifs. It's maybe not chromosomes in general, but this unusual scenario of Klaxosaur chromosomes in particular. Anyway, this unlikely discovery, and whatever else he discovers from his renewed enthusiasm, gets him put in charge of developing an anti-Klaxosaur weapon. This narration plays over Karina examining their wedding certificate, which on close-up we can see is filled out, but it lacks both Dr. Franks's and the officiator's signatures. We are to assume, I think, that their wedding plans were derailed by his dive into all things Klaxosaur. We jump five years into the future to the prototype testing phase of the Franks. This prototype most resembles the normal squad machines, so I think we can assume that those models would eventually come first. The Frakes won't start up initially, and they will discover in time that the pilots need to still possess reproductive functions. Okay, but why? Um, or to restate, how do you design a machine without knowing something like that? And once you discover it, why is that the design that you stick with? I mean, you wouldn't design an internal combustion engine without knowing that it needed some kind of combustible fuel to work, right? You wouldn't work backwards from a completed machine to figure something like that out. You would start by knowing that combustible fuel was a thing, and then you design the engine around that. If something like, it needs reproductive-enabled pilots to work, was part of the design, you would know that while you were designing it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. So can you imagine a situation in which you built a machine to the point of having a working prototype without actually understanding how it could start up? Now, I can't imagine designing like that, 
but I can imagine building one like that. How would I do that? By copying something that already exists. If I didn't know what an internal combustion engine was, but you plopped one in front of me and told me what it should be able to do, I could probably build something just like it and then start to figure out that I need things like combustible fuel. That sounds much more like what might be going on here. In fact, since Dr. Franks' discovery about the genetic makeup of Klaxosaurus is what got him put in charge of such a project to begin with, it seems increasingly likely that Franks aren't original designs, but are based in some way on the Klaxosaurus themselves. More mechanical than biological, sure, but that might be exactly why they need two biological pilots to work, to shore up the difference. They don't ever actually explain what reproductive capability has to do with it. We can draw a parallel between them being powered by magma like everything else, and we know that the magma immortality treatments remove that reproductive capability. So there is at least some link between the fuel source and reproduction in humans. Why this should be, well, we don't know, but there is at least that common thread, uh, and it's all we have at this point. Anyway, you can't have a mad scientist backstory without some tragedy from their experiments, and so we join Karina volunteering to pilot one of the prototypes. Now, her desire to be a mother doesn't just give her a reason to forego immortality, and it doesn't just give her a relatable goal. It also makes her one of the few people that can even be a test subject. It's important to note that she volunteered for this. She wasn't impressed in the service, and Dr. Franks didn't coerce her. He even apologizes, and I think he's worried too. Hence her comment about not looking at her like that. The prototype goes haywire and kills her in a scene that I'm sure will have people drawing parallels to Evangelion. Uh, that is beyond the scope of what we do here. Uh, what I do want you to note is that when the cockpit is burst, a ton of yellow liquid gushes out, as though the cockpit or the head was filled with it. While I'm sure this is the magma energy we are seeing, I feel like it should remind us of this little scene from earlier. Now we see Dr. Franks shouting in dismay, and then we cut to black before seeing Karina's grave. Here is where the real tragedy of this comes into full picture. Her name is still Karina Milsa. I know that's possible she wouldn't have taken his name in marriage anyway, um, as that is especially common for a woman that already has a professional reputation, but they showed us the unsigned wedding certificate. I think we are supposed to understand that they never got married. Stayed together, yes, but after he made that trip to Alaska, he only really had interest in the Klaxosaurs and the research that he conducted on them. Karina stayed in his peripheral vision, but never got to be his focus. And so she volunteered. She put herself in harm's way so that she could be part of what captivated him. It was a calculated risk. Um, if it had succeeded and progress on the project continued with her as a lead test subject, then she would have been in the center of his world. But the risk didn't break her way. Now, I'm not going to try to sell you on the idea of Dr. Franks as a good guy or anything. Um, we know enough of him by now to realize that he's largely amoral and has a very detached orientation to other living things. But I do think this death affected him. He even wonders if this is a curse as he visits her grave. The grave itself is an upsetting bit of imagery. She is buried alone in some blasted landscape, nothing living in sight. And yet Dr. Franks has brought flowers. Flowers, used over and over to symbolize rebirth and fertility, are a tragic symbol in this case. There is no rebirth here. There is no fertility in the land surrounding them. And her own fertility has perished with her as she tried to advance the doctor's work. He becomes haggard and restless after this point. 
even as the experiments continue and many others lose their lives. The problem, it turns out, is the stress of piloting, and the combination of riding in male-female pairs and injecting them with yellow blood cells alleviates this issue. The yellow blood cells are described as acting as a conduit to the Franks, but much like the need for pilots to have reproductive capability, they don't actually explain why these things are necessary. What about the Franks would require something natural in its pilots, like their fertility, and yet also something unnatural, like whatever it is the yellow blood cells turn out to be. This again suggests to me that these things were not invented from the ground up, but are based on something pre-existing, and the Klaxosaurs are the only thing we know of that makes sense. Anyway, with this problem solved, uh, mankind ironically found a need for new children. We're shown an image of fetal development in one of these enormous orange tubes, which suggests a type of artificial gestation. It may be that there simply weren't enough women with functioning wombs anymore, or this may be the way children have been made ever after. Kokoro's comments about where babies come from in episode 17 contradicted the idea of them being made by Papa, and it's not a statement that the Nines countered. This led me to believe that they are indeed born in the normal way, but this image suggests that it may be otherwise. I'm not totally sold on either way right now, um, but I do want us to remember that one of those ethically squirrely things that Dr. Franks was doing in the beginning was cloning. The, there is some logic to this being how they got started anyway. I mean, once the world has made itself infertile, where can you get new children from at all? Now, considering the need for children from nothing, I would like to suggest that parasites might have increased growth. Like, they would need them to be born and grow up and get to puberty as fast as they can, right? Uh, they don't have time to wait on nature if they don't have to. So perhaps they have been altered to age rapidly, which does get them to piloting age faster, but also means that they will continue to age rapidly, growing old and dying before ever actually aging up to adulthood. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember us ever being given an actual age for our parasites. We know that Mitsuru got his injection at age 9, and they look like they could be somewhere in the ballpark for what we think of being 9 years old, but how old are they now? They've only been a Mistletine for six months when they return to Garden, and they are shocked at how young the kids seem to them. The scenes we'll see in a minute of Parasites first arriving at Mistletine also seem far younger than our squad. Is it possible that they really aged up that quickly? This could also be a kind of inverse of the magma immortality treatments. Like, in adults, the magma treatments grants you immortality but takes your reproduction. In the parasites, who hold on to their reproduction, maybe magma instead takes immortality from them. That is, it increases their mortality and therefore ages them. I'm not sure which, if either, makes more sense, um, but I know they would definitely need children from somewhere to replenish what they've lost. Anyway, before we return to the present, we have this little bit from Dr. Franks explaining how society came to be divided. As parasites, pilots of the Franks, they were called children and they were made to refer to the rest of us as adults. This isn't telling us anything we don't know, but the way this is phrased makes me think that there is some kind of wordplay going on here. As I've mentioned, I don't speak Japanese, so I have no idea what could be implied, but I wonder if something in the connotation of the original Japanese may be explaining to us where the term parasites comes from? Hopefully somebody knows. Back in the present, we get to see the first squad-wide reaction to what has happened to Kokoro and Mitsuru. I'd like to note that most of our squad is still huddled together in their cubby like we noted last time, while Mitsuru and Kokoro, who ostensibly have been made to be like most other parasites, 
are the only ones we've really seen wandering around the way the other squads have. Part of this process apparently involved adding new fake memories over the other ones they erased, so let's add that little bit of dystopia to the pile of things that Ape has at their disposal. Fatoshi is still pretty emotional about the whole affair, asking if what they did was so wrong that they deserved to have their memories erased. To this, our last Papa apologist chimes in. We knew that Zorame would be the last one who needed to be won over, and it seems that even the crashed wedding and the altered memories haven't completely eroded his faith. The others confront him on this, even Miku, so I think we can safely guess that he is the last one who still believes in Papa. And he explains, they've only ever had Papa their whole lives. Now it's easy to be impatient with Zorome here, um, but like I said a few episodes ago, children don't have any other context for the way you grow up besides the one that they go through. It's a hard thing to face the imperfections of your parents or guardians, and it's something we naturally resist as we transition to adulthood. Zorome's role of being the holdout here actually helps show us that everyone else has already gotten to that stage, and we will later get a suggestion that he's not that far behind them. Hiro then returns to the group at this point. Uh, from context, we can guess that he has been accompanying Zero Two to her final tune-ups. Am I the only person who gets nervous at these constant tweaks they do to Zero Two? Is it meaningful that we never get to see any of Zero Two's tune-ups? We see the treatment the children and the parasites get, and while it doesn't seem like happy fun times, it doesn't seem like it should get nearly the response and resistance that we've seen Zero Two put up. I think we can surmise that she goes through something much more taxing, but what? And why is it hidden from us? I don't know, it just makes me nervous. The number of opportunities they have to change things about her seems like a constant threat. But that is not the point of the scene, <laughs> sorry. Uh, the point is that Hiro has decided to ask Papa directly to restore their teammates' memories. He says, let's tell him how we feel, implying that he wants them to present as a group. Zorome's expression says he is not of a mind with the rest, but he also raises no protest. We can assume this happens just before the later present time scene, so uh, we will come back to it. Picking up where we left off in Dr. Franks' memories, we see that they did get the Franks up and working, and the early years of squad combat were a high casualty game of trial and error. Progress was made, and Garden was founded as a way to nurture the children. It looks like a young Nana and Hachi might have been some of the earliest residents. It seems there was no point at which Hachi was actually capable of smiling. We learn that the plantations were all fitted with a zone like the one we see in the 13th plantation, and that they were all called Mistletine. He refers to the area as a quarantine zone, uh, which is something I will come back to in speculation. He explains that the design of the environment was specifically meant to be antiquated, as it was better suited to raising them with their still intact emotions. Despite how it looks, Mistletine is still basically a laboratory, and the parasites are monitored and controlled as experiments. We see that the invisible caretakers that bring them food and laundry are a type of automation, as we see their dining room actually rise up from the floor with the spread already laid out. This also jives with the idea of the Mistletine areas as quarantine zones. The system was a success, it seems, as he next explains that the adults inside the plantations were even able to forget about the Klaxosaurs, and under the influence of their magma-induced immortality, obtained a life of eternal tedium. As Zero Two once said, a lifeless city. Dr. Franks, though, found no satisfaction, and has not resigned himself to eternal tedium either. He says he was looking for somewhere he belonged, a resting place for his heart. 
He also says that he lost interest in the future of mankind and was instead engrossed in the search for a more perfected life form. Now, time skips somewhere in here, but we cease getting the updated years. There is a moment where we see a warehouse with a variety of mysterious shapes under tarps that have labels like N20 and C10 and D30, or something like that. No explanation is given, though we can perhaps infer that these are intact Klaxosaur corpses underneath, especially as it switches to him looking into another orange tube while he talks about seeking a more perfected life form. We don't actually get to see what it is in the tube because he's blocking it, so I'm guessing it could be something not quite human looking. The labels on those tarps also make me think of the strange prefix on the parasite's full codes. Remember those? When we first saw one back in episode 2, I wondered at what the FP40 prefix could mean. It's on Zotome's and Mitsuru's records as well. It might be coincidence, and the 40 could be something like their class number, that they were the 40th class of parasites to come out of the garden or something like that. But if it's related to what's under these tarps, well, we're still missing information, that's for sure. Anyway, the next step in Dr. Franks' search for a perfected being then occurs as he learns about a rumor of a Klaxosaur queen bee. Such a thing would of course pique his interest, and Ape accedes to his request to go with one condition. Bring back something of this queen bee's that can serve as a DNA sample. It seems where to find her was not the only thing that Ape mysteriously already knew, but we will come back to that as well. The actual trip there is a mirror of the journey that we already saw from our deceased ape envoys. Dr. Franks describes the subterranean lair as the remains of an unknown ancient civilization. We already had it indicated that they were surprised the Klaxosaur still had the type of technology we saw during the envoys trip, but Dr. Franks' comment suggests that the decline they refer to isn't from the beginning of their conflict into the present, but from the ancient past into the present. This too, we will return to. Their contingent explores into the obviously artificial tunnel. I love that there are guys in biohazard suits while Dr. Franks just walks around uncovered and unarmed. Um, their first encounter with the Queen Bee is actually with her voice, and we get it confirmed that she can indeed speak telepathically with humans. She calls them ignorant beings and asks why they kill our brethren. She sets a particularly nasty spider-looking Klaxosaur on them, and then lectures them telepathically about being needlessly belligerent while she has them slaughtered. This confirms for us that she does not actually know what the word needlessly means. Dr. Franks is brought before her in the same audience chamber we have already seen. She actually comes down to his level, indicating that she is quite confident that he can't harm her. He is immediately enraptured. She was without a doubt the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. Sorry, Karina. Our princess demands that he hold out his hand, and she sniffs it. This behavior should remind us of someone else. The smell test is enough for her to know that he has Klaxosaur blood on him, and she declares that his sins are far too grave to be punished with mere death. She follows us up by licking him. He finds this, well, quite delightful, but like the sniffing, the licking should remind us of someone. In Zero Two's case, she does it a few times that we've seen, and doing so doesn't seem to be about what the person actually tastes like. Instead, she seems to discern something about them from the process. Hiro makes her heart race, uh, Ichigo she finds to be sweet, and Ikuno she can tell is hiding a secret. And in the very beginning, when she is still in her self-loathing state, she hates the way she herself tastes. Should we assume that the Klaxosaur princess is licking Dr. Franks here for a similar reason? 
to ascertain something about him or his character. Whatever she decides motivates her to violence. Her eyes do the iris shrinking thing that we saw young Zero Twos do when she bit Hero, and she jumps onto Dr. Franks and wraps him up like some kind of iron spider smurfette. But biting his arm off does not seem to change Dr. Franks' feelings on the matter. As he says, he remained in love with the Klaxosaur princess. His commentary is telling. I might really have already lost all of my humanity. Now the princess commands him to tell his kind not to lay hands on her brethren anymore. Does she really believe that will stop the conflict between them? I don't know if she's just naive, or she's out of touch, or she just wants justification for her own violence. Uh, anyway, she is holding her arm in his mouth during this, but then spits it out. This too reminds me of someone else. Now, despite the pain, Dr. Franks is still pretty excited by the whole exchange. He said earlier that he was seeking a more perfected life form, and it would seem that he just found it. Even the pain of losing a limb does not diminish his ecstasy here. If anything, he might positively correlate the two things. His scientific curiosity and pleasure at discovery is actually a stronger force in him than his own well-being. This brings him back to the present, where he looks at his fully mechanical replacement arm and reminisces. Hero and the rest of the squad interrupt him, and it seems he helps them set up the audience with Ape that Hero wanted. It's a nice touch to have Hero remember to use their code numbers rather than their nicknames in his request, uh, but it is all for naught. Ape tells them there is no restoring their memories, something that Dr. Franks' nod seems to confirm. Our squad takes this pretty hard. Even Zotome is upset. Ape goes on to say that they are breaking protocol and should be punished for what they're doing. Goro and Fatoshi both look pretty angry over this comment. Ape magnanimously lets them off with just a mark on their permanent record. I'm sure that'll show them. Ape attempts to dismiss the squad, and Ichigo tries to speak up before Fatoshi's anger bursts and he aggressively demands apologies. He is unapologetically critical of them for their behavior, and they don't actually say anything back. I think he really caught them off guard. I don't think they have any idea how far they have pushed the squad. And then the last person they haven't pushed over the edge pipes up. Zorome asks them how many Klaxosaurs they must kill before they can become adults. The rest of the squad's downcast glances say that they know very well that Zodome hopes for nothing, and Ape's silence gives him the answer, an answer that he doesn't want. He doesn't know what he's supposed to live for now. Do they really only exist to pilot Franks and then die? He still wants Papa to give him some answer for this, but he doesn't. And I'm sure that this is the end of Zodome's loyalty. Hero then makes a decision for them all. He proclaims that they took his and Zero Two's memories, and Kokoro's and Mitsuru's as well. For this, they can no longer see him as their papa. I'm not sure it's a good idea to give away that you know they took your own memories, or to let them know that you've gotten them back. Uh, maybe they won't make the connection, especially with the temerity of his next statement. Hero demands that after the next battle, they be set free. It's a crazy demand. If asking to have your squad members' memories restored is a breach of protocol worth being punished, then asking to completely skip out must surely warrant some pretty serious consequences, right? Instead, they agree, with the stipulation that they fulfill their duties in the next mission. Well, that sounds like a trap. I'm guessing this next mission involves something that will make their survival or their return pretty unlikely. In that case, it's in Ape's best interest just to humor them so that they'll still obey. This seems like a victory of sorts, but I'm guessing that even if their next mission wasn't originally a one-way journey, it sure will be now. 
Ape may be naive about the obedience of the squad, but Hero is quite naive about the likelihood of their leaders being people who keep their word. What's done is done, though, and the squad leaves Hero alone with the Doctor. Outside, we see Mitsuru and Kokoro beginning to get reacquainted, while Zorame is balled up in the pain of reality. Over this, Dr. Franks asks Hero if they are rising up against fate. He implores him to show whether they can become real humans or not. That is pretty well in line with what we've suspected Dr. Franks has been up to with the 13ers all along. Despite this whole episode of diving into this past, it's still hard to say how much he cares about Squad 13 accomplishing this. But I think we can assume that he is not neutral about it. Hero's answer is one of defiance. We'll decide our fate ourselves. Defying fate may actually be a theme for the series by the end. Hero broke it already when he died for his original fated purpose and returned to life with another. Zero Two is fated to be a tool for Ape someday soon, but her constant contrarian actions suggest that when the time comes, she may buck this fate as well. The two of them together seem to fear that they are caught in the fate of the Beast and the Prince story, thus putting off finishing the book and making its ending a reality for themselves. We are still waiting on the outcome of that particular destiny, but we can count on them resisting it as well, I think. At this point, Hero lets Dr. Franks know that he knows what he did to Zero Two in their youth, and that he will never forgive him. This sets them at odds going forward. If Dr. Franks is indeed their ally, they will not be expecting it or relying on it. Like Hachi, he has been positioned as an aide unlooked for, a potential 11th hour savior. He may be nothing of the kind, but this exchange at least sets up any cooperation between them to come wholly from Dr. Franks and without any kind of shared plans. Hero finally leaves the conference room, and Zero Two awaits him. I guess she had not returned from her tune-ups when they went to confront Papa, and so waited outside. I'm unsure if the dynamic of the conversation would have changed if she was present, uh, but there's no way to know now. Now, this scene is a pretty direct callback to Episode 3, when Zero Two was similarly seated while waiting on Hero to finish practice. Like then, he finds himself staring at her horns, and also like then, she accuses him of being a pervert. This time, though, he's not abashed or embarrassed, uh, but smiles. In Episode 3, what followed after their exchange was Zero Two showing him the city and suggesting for the first time that they run away together. This time, Hero informs her that the squad has made their decision. That is, they have asked to be set free. In both cases, this appears to be motivated by their childhood goal of seeing the outside world together. Though I think we have reason to be apprehensive, these two at least believe they have taken one step closer to that goal. As if to commentate on this very scenario, Dr. Franks continues his narration as he watches them. He says fate is cruel more often than not. That is definitely something we have feared for some time, and the series has given us many, many reasons to expect that things will eventually turn out badly. I mentioned at the beginning, though, that the end of this episode gave us the first strong suggestion that there may be a happy ending in store after all. This is the scene I mean. For the next thing Dr. Franks says is that fate can be quite powerless in the face of desire. In context, desire likely refers to the love between Hero and Zero Two, but I think it also relates to Dr. Franks and is the reason these events are told in parallel with his own backstory. He thinks to himself that Zero Two would probably hate him if she knew, which takes us once more back into the past. Dr. Franks has returned from the Princess Lair and is recovering from his wound, and yet he's triumphant. 
for in the struggle that cost him his arm, he came away with some of her hair, the DNA sample he was instructed to get. Ape has one purpose for this, sure, but Dr. Franks has a more personal investment. He says that soon his dream will come true, a dream enabled by these stolen hairs. We see another fetal incubation, and then the reflection of the doctor's face once more rapturous as he says, show me your perfected form and how beautiful it can be. This, it seems, is Dr. Franks' desire, something else that fate may be powerless to oppose. He wants to create something as beautiful and perfect as the Claxosaur Princess, an ideal life form. Remember what he said to Karina, he's always wanted to know their pinnacle and limit as an organism. Considering the similarity in XX chromosomes we talked about earlier, he may suspect that Claxosaurs and humans aren't so different after all, that the princess herself may be something akin to the pinnacle of humanity to Dr. Franks's eyes. And we will have more of that in speculation. The last bit to wonder here, I think, is what exactly he is cultivating. I know he has the princess's DNA and is someone who worked in cloning. Considering it was thinking about Zero Two that prompted this final memory, I think it's safe to say that Zero Two's origin has something to do with that stolen princess DNA. But does that mean Zero Two is a direct clone of the princess? They have a lot of similarities, as I pointed out, but Zero Two is also pretty different. I mean, she starts off completely red. There's also the matter of the blue mother-like thing that she vaguely remembers from her nursery days. Is it possible that Dr. Franks cloned variations of the princess, but then crossed them with humans to produce something like Zero Two? And the blue mother is perhaps one of these clones? This could be in line with that idea of humanity's pinnacle instead. The Claxosaur princess was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen. Mixing her with humanity might, to his mind, produce the most perfected form of humanity. Once he achieves Zero Two, he may have destroyed the mother as we see him routinely destroy other specimens. This might explain the way she fades in the memory and also the reason Zero Two would hate him if she knew. I mean, I guess it is possible that Zero Two is a direct clone, but doesn't it seem quite a lot of time has passed between this age Dr. Franks and this one? We can infer from his comments here that Zero Two is the last in a long line of failed attempts but were all of them just direct clones? I suppose the mother figure could have been a failed clone as well that was still useful as a caregiver for the others or something. I don't have a sure answer here, um, but I do want to float the idea that Zero Two might be a hybrid in truth rather than a direct princess clone, even though I think either is possible with uh, what the story has given us. Either way, no matter what Dr. Franks thinks of Hero and the other 13ers, I think we can definitely say he is invested in Zero Two. If she is a cross with a human, he may even be her father, but even if he isn't, he is probably still the closest thing to that role for her. His desire then, that might itself upset fate, is that he is very attached to Zero Two and still enamored of the Claxosaur Princess. I don't know what Ape ultimately intends for either of them, but I can't imagine Dr. Franks would stand idly by while Ape tries to destroy the two. Even if he cares not at all about the rest of 13th Squad, he may still come to their aid if it's to save Zero Two, or interfere with Ape's actions if it's to save the princess. His desires and Hero's desires may find common cause. In fact, he and Hero share a lot of things in common. Obviously, they both find the Klaxosaur women beautiful and are entranced by their nature rather than repelled by it, uh, but each of them is also curious. Each of them is driven to ask questions of the world around them, and each of them is resistant to authority, 
are resistant to the notion that they should just fall in line. The real critical difference between them is that Hero is a man of empathy and Dr. Franks has almost none. Hero can see young Zero Two as someone just like himself, while Dr. Franks can't even see his fellow humans as more than test subjects. Each of their desires is positioned to defy fate, it's true, um, but Dr. Franks, as the episode title suggests, has fallen to being inhuman, while Hero and his squad are on track to become real humans. If that intangible idea of humanity the series routinely invokes has any importance, then I think it's likely that Hero will get to see his desire through, and Dr. Franks will not. Ultimately, we need to remember that we still did not get the complete story. There is a gap between this and this, perhaps a considerable gap considering how much Dr. Franks changes. Somewhere in that gap, he adopted the other machine parts of himself, though I wonder now if the horn is more of an affectation than anything, maybe a nod to his love of Klaxosaurs. Now, there is also a gap between this and this, and somewhere in that gap, he and Zero Two got on good terms with each other. I still have an ongoing speculation that the events between Hero and Zero Two in their youth might have actually changed Dr. Franks. The almost wistful way he speaks to Hero at the end of this episode, uh, and his thoughts on fate versus desire, sound at least like someone with a more personal attachment than the past as Dr. Franks we learned about today. I started this video off by saying that we were going to try to figure out who the real Dr. Franks was. While we do finally understand part of what motivates him, I can't help but feel that I still am unsure about the content of his character uh, this exact moment. We got more reasons to suspect him than to cheer him, but the gaps in his history are still big unknowns. The best I feel we can guess is that there will be just enough shared purpose with our squad that he will eventually help rather than harm, and perhaps what kind of person he is will matter less than what kind of decisions he makes. Our confrontation with Ape at the end affects two of our goals today. One is the squad goal of life beyond piloting. Zodome was the last holdout, the last one who had a hope that is still attached to his duty of being a pilot. That is probably over now, and he'll be looking for a new purpose like the rest of them. Because of Hero's request, whether the squad actually gets set free or not, the desire to be free is out in the open. This will give the squad something to chew on and internalize, but it also cuts off their chances of continuing as they have. Neither Ape nor they should expect business as usual after the next mission. They probably have different ideas about what that should look like, but if life at all is a possibility for the squad, then a life beyond piloting is no longer just a goal, it's a requirement. Similarly, the goal of seeing the outside world for Hero and Zero Two. They have made the desire to be free plain, and they have caught the whole squad up in the wake of their goal. They may not get what they expect, but they will have good cause not to meekly return to their cages after the next mission. Ape's relationship to Zero Two means that this goal may play out differently than the squad goal, despite the way they are linked at the moment. It might be more likely or less likely, though I would guess that less likely is the smarter wager. Finally, the big one, Dr. Franks' unknown goal is not quite as unknown. Because of the gaps I mentioned, I don't think we can be completely confident we understand all of what he wants, uh, but for now we know it has something to do with finding humanity's pinnacle and limit as an organism. Due to the very end, we know he has linked this goal in his mind to the Klaxosaur princess and to whatever he did with her DNA, 
which we are assuming means that his goal is linked to 0 2. What exactly he wants or expects from this is still something we'll need to be patient about. But I still wager his goal for 0 2 is not the same as Ape's goal for 0 2, and that might be just the point on which the story turns during some future moment. In conflicts, we will just continue to add to the jig is up. Dr. Franks may have lost his influence and clout due to the fallout from the Nine's report. Considering the protection he seems to create for our squad, the loss of his control may have unfortunate consequences uh, beyond what we've already seen. The squad further complicates this by putting their desire to be free out in the open for apes to know about. While simply being granted leave is still their best chance at actually being set free, there is a risk in letting Ape know. They can't ignore how different they are from other squads after today's antics, and that might cause more trouble from the 13ers than they bargained for. But this could also lead to more overreach by Ape. Remember what I said last time about not leaving your prey a means to escape. If the punishment for asking for freedom is death, and the punishment for open rebellion is also death, you should probably expect rebellion. So moving on to theme, um, in Individual versus Society, uh, in Dr. Franks's backstory, he was the individual versus the larger scientific community. This brought him into conflict with his original boss, but one of the ways individual versus society can resolve is by the individual carving out a place in that society or fleeing beyond its influence. Being accepted into Ape solved that crisis for him. His time as the individual, however, also isolated him in his decision-making. By being ostracized and then later insulated, he had no incentive to change what he was doing or to re-examine the ethics of his experiments. Individual versus society is often used in stories to make us side with the individual, who chafes under the shackles of expectations and taboos. But in some cases, the rejection from society is part of what causes the problem. Dr. Franks had little recourse but to join Ape, who themselves turned out to be without scruples. This meant that he and other questionably ethical scientists became exempted from the peer pressure of the greater community, and instead worked with other unethical sorts. This does not cure them from their lack of ethics, but rather reinforces them. But this also means that he's quite familiar with being the contrarian following his own will. He therefore is in a unique position in this plantation society to understand what Hero and Zero Two go through and why they act the way they act sometimes. Like I said, it's still unclear if we should think of him as an ally for the squad, but it's definitely the case that he is probably one of the very few people in this conformist world who can grasp their mindset. Next up in Death and Rebirth, um, I think his encounter with the princess probably counts. While he doesn't die exactly, he faces death and takes serious injury. His life is effectively spared by the princess, and his encounter with her gives him a renewed purpose in life. This is in contrast to the rebirth he did not experience with the death of Karina, which was effectively symbolized by the barrenness of her burial ground and how starkly out of place the flowers were. There is also the rebirth of humanity in the form of the parasites, which only occurs because the death of humanity due to the dehumanizing effects of their immortality treatments. Where we are in the story right now, the completion of both death and rebirth for these two segments of society has still not reached conclusion. Their tension continues. Now to nature versus artifice. So obviously the move toward immortality taking away reproduction is an example of this. 
Um, it's exchanging the natural order of generational descent for something that completely doesn't exist in nature. There is also the move toward the apex of material wealth wreaking havoc on the natural world. That doesn't need to be spelled out at all, really. Uh, though, as I said earlier, the way humanity and nature's fertility both rapidly decrease in tandem is a blatant example of our fertility themes. These were some of the most obvious examples in the series so far, but since we guessed a lot of this would be true already, uh, we've been over it quite a bit, so we will leave off with this one here. Now in Fate vs. Desire, um, I want to go ahead and add this one now, and we will keep an eye on it. Finding your fate or defying your fate is a pretty regular theme in storytelling, but setting it up in contrast to Desire the way Dr. Franks does at the end might make an interesting lens to view the series through uh, by the end. This will probably have some crossover with Power of Love if the characters get their way, but how much this applies will depend on how the story unfolds. We might should expect it to be one of the final tensions when we approach the climax. Additionally to add, what is human? Like I said, we've brought this up as a possible central question to the series since uh, episode 5. This time, Dr. Franks is on board with the idea, and articulates it twice. Once when wondering if post-immortality humans are even human anymore, and again at the end when wondering if the kids can become real humans or not by challenging fate. If my giant speculation later on holds any water at all, this will get even more reinforcement as a guiding question for our story. In What to Watch For, we have a few that we can take off. For the Parasites, we sort of got an answer about why you can't pilot alone, which is simply that the stress of it is too much. It's still not clear why it must be boy-girl pairs or those who can still reproduce, so we will leave that alone for now. We also found out about the so-called invisible caretakers. Seems the food and laundry and all that was a type of automation, uh, like we actually guessed way back when. This also explains why they have the strict schedule. I have some guesses about why it's done with automation that we'll touch on in speculation, but calling Mistletine a quarantine zone is probably related to that rationale. Lastly, will Hero lose faith in society? Truthfully, this happened for him back as a child, but the adult Hero has tried largely to play by society's rules even while pursuing Zero Two and proposing the life beyond piloting for his squad. Today, though, he told Papa to his face that they can't consider him their Papa anymore, so that is for sure the end of his adherence to the idea of this society. So, for things to add, um, now that my man Fatoshi has set up Kokoro and Mitsuru to partner again, we should probably be expecting something to come out of their connection process. It might not put things right again, but it seems unlikely that nothing at all will come of it. We should be watching to see if we can piece together what happened in the gaps in uh, Dr. Franks' story. Um, there were the two that I mentioned. The first one concerns Zero Two's origin and possibly other experiments. And the second one concerns what kind of person Dr. Franks really is after the hero and Zero Two escape in their youth. I'm sure we will at least find out more about the first gap at some point. Also, with regards to Dr. Franks, now that we know how he feels about the Klaxosaur Princess, and potentially Zero Two by extension, we should watch to see if he moves things behind the scenes to thwart anything extreme that Ape may try. If he has truly fallen out of favor now, he might have to be less subtle than usual, and that might tip his hand for us as to what role he's going to play in the rest of the story. Now, we saw a lot today about how humanity got to this point. 
We understand why childbirth isn't a thing anymore, but why is it taboo? It seems between the child tax and the immortality side effects that childbirth ceased of its own accord. So why make it a thought crime also? One of the suggestions I got a few times after the last video was that Kokoro being pregnant seemed unlikely because surely they were feeding the girls birth control or something similar if having a child was such a problem. But there would be no need to do that if there's such an effective taboo. Or rather, flip that around. If they were just keeping the girls on birth control or some other contraception, then there would be no need for such a taboo. Rather, it seems more likely that having the ability to reproduce is what is required for the Franks, not just technically having the organs. Thus the need to suppress the information because there is an actual risk of pregnancy. But that brings me to what I want to watch for on this. Why does it need to be taboo? Why would childbearing parasites be such a threat or disruption? Is it really just about control? Or is there something else in whatever they've done to the children that makes childbearing different than it might normally be? Finally, we should be watching to see what ape changes about the upcoming mission after the 13th squad requests to be free. The ease with which they agreed makes me think it's a one-way mission anyway, but if they make changes to ensure that, then it's the kind of anomaly that actually might give the squad a way out. In speculation, there are a number of things we've talked about that I never put on the board um, that have actually borne out just the same. Um, immortality is indeed the state of the adults in the society, and their loss of reproductive organs were linked to this immortality. Um, I thought it stood to reason before now, but direct confirmation is nice. We guessed that the Klaxosaur Princess and Dr. Franks might have met in their past, and that there might be an unfulfilled relationship there. We were half right, and that they did meet, and Dr. Franks does seem to be carrying the torch for her, in a way. It doesn't strike me as very mutual, though. However, his feelings have probably informed his decisions in the past and how we arrived at the present, so this wasn't completely irrelevant. Let's see, uh, we also made guesses about the age of plantation society. We guessed that it couldn't have been too long ago because of the state of decay of the beachside town. While I don't remember us ever being given a date for the present, we guessed that the seaside town might have been abandoned 25 to 75 years ago, and that still seems pretty reasonable. We also guessed that Dr. Frank's predated plantation society because he has a real name, and that turned out to be true as well. As for the board, we have some things that are right and are wrong, and some that are a mix. One of our oldest speculations is about humanity being infertile and the Franks being an attempt at a solution. We added disease as a possible cause later on, but it turns out we would have been better off leaving that alone. Unless you want to count the desire for immortality as some kind of disease of the mind or something. The Franks are not an attempt at a solution for infertility but rather the children are a solution for the problems that infertility causes with regard to the Franks. It's weird that the worldwide infertility turns out to be elective, but at least the thematic synergy with fertility and rebirth and our parasites gets to be all the more pronounced because of it. We also just added way down here that Squad 13 will begin to think about how to alter their fate. Not only did fate itself get referenced directly this time, but they have already made this decision and taken the first step toward it by declaring their intent to ape. That leads us to our speculation that I am simply calling XY theory. I'm sure I won't be alone in proposing pieces of this. In fact, just this scene combined with this scene should be enough to suggest the main idea. 
But I also want to connect this to an analogy I put forward back in episode five, as well as every other unexplained moment that I think it connects. This is the most comprehensive speculation I've proposed really since episode two, when I first thought that there was an infertility to the world, and also that the parasites were ignorant of sexuality, and this ignorance was intentional. Fertility, infertility, and sexuality have borne out since then to not only be a central part of the show's themes and metaphors, but a large part of the narrative as well. Today's speculation is therefore connected to that central idea of fertility and the accompanying role of gender. This gets really far down the rabbit hole by the end, so grab some coffee and bear with me. The analogy I proposed back in episode five was that plantation society recalled a eusocial organism like bees or ants or wasps, and that elements of this universe had a lot of crossover with those social structures. There's the many visual parallels to a beehive for one, the giant enclosed shell that houses the inhabitants, all of the use of hexagons or golden color, the representation of the energy source magma as something very honey-like, and then the literal instances of Zero Two enjoying or sharing honey to drive the parallel home. Their society shares similarities as well. In a real beehive, the majority of the population are sterile worker bees who are all technically female but can't reproduce. The other two segments of the society are the queen, who does all of the egg laying and is the central figure of any hive, and the drones, which are the male bees whose only role is mating with the queen. The drones are a small population, and they don't do anything to contribute to the hive, and so are therefore a type of parasite on their society. They also are short-lived, only existing long enough to fulfill their function of aiding reproduction. Thus, the children and adults in plantation society echo the drones and workers in a beehive, with the ape council standing in for the queen bee at the top. The analogy isn't perfect, of course, but there are enough elements to suggest that some emulation of eusocial organisms was intended. Where would Ape have gotten the notion to do this? My answer is that some of the members of the original Lamarck Club are familiar with this type of social structure because it's the one that they themselves came from. Specifically, these three. We have discussed recently that the way the envoys meeting with the Klaxosaur Princess progressed, and the later meeting about it, suggested that we had a multiple faction or multiple type of beings in our ape council. We had already suggested that the ape council may not have been as homogenous as they appeared after the debut of the new opening, with its theme of separation and the image of the two members looking away from one another. The meeting with the Klaxosaur princess and the reaction to her telepathy suggested that the short council member was different in a fundamental way to the other four that are present. In the meeting afterwards, the two council members who are unperturbed about the assassination attempt speak in such a way as to indicate that they and the shorter one are of one faction or type, and the other three present, plus the tall one who died, were of another faction or type. The comment about seeking a world where ape and humanity can live for all eternity further suggests that ape and humanity are different things. In this episode, our first look at Ape's beginnings shows seven original members of the Lamarck Club. While all wear masks, only these three are completely covered. The other four you can tell are humans wearing masks, like we later see most adults wear, but the three we know are somehow different are covered up from the beginning. 
and Dr. Franks helpfully informs us that their origin is unknown. We can further see this episode in the two times we are in a video conference that these two remaining council members are listed as chief and assistant chief, while the other three appear to have names. So, these two and the failed assassin are a different kind of thing from the rest. So, what are they? They are XY Klaxosaurs. That is, they are the males, the drone bees, from Klaxosaur society. If you'll remember, Dr. Franks discovered that the Klaxosaur corpse had the same XX chromosomes found in human females. We'll come back to the human part of that in a bit. Now, we never get any indication that a non-XX Klaxosaur is ever found. Considering they took the time to point out the XX part, I think we could expect them to do the same if they found an XY Klaxosaur, no? In fact, why bother pointing out the XX chromosome part if not to imply its exclusivity? This means that all the ones they found are XX, seemingly an entire population of females. Just like a beehive, they are the sterile but technically female workers. We see the Klaxosaur princess, who they literally describe as a queen bee, so that is who she is, and that just leaves the males. If these three members of Ape came from Klaxosaur society, it explains a lot about their rise to power. They already knew about magma as an energy source, hence knowing it would be worth their while to mine it to the surface. They hire Dr. Franks and Karina and the others to work on magma as a means to immortality, which means they already knew that was a possibility as well. They were ready with a solution for desertification, so perhaps they knew the long-term outcome to magma mining. More on that idea in a moment as well. Um, additionally, their final control over humanity occurred when Klaxosaurs showed up to attack the mines, hastening humanity's transfer into the plantations. The eventual emergence of Klaxosaurs to attack the magma mines is something else they should be able to expect if they came from their society. They even style the plantations in white and orange. Something I pointed out before is the exact opposite of the Klaxosaur blue and black. But they did this before anyone else even knew Klaxosaurs existed. Everything to do with their interaction with the princess suggests they have foreknowledge as well. They knew there was a queen bee, and that Klaxosaur society was structured to even have a queen bee role in the first place. They knew where to find her, and Dr. Franks takes the time to specifically point out that he doesn't know how they discovered that. Finally, they charged him to bring back something that had her DNA on it. They want to use her DNA for some reason. As we've discussed in the past, the key and replacement key seem most likely to refer to the Princess and Zero Two, respectively. The end of this episode suggests pretty strongly that Zero Two originates from the stolen DNA, whether directly or as a hybrid. Knowing that the Princess DNA can be a key of some kind means they already knew this and knew it about her before Dr. Franks' meeting. Else why insist upon it? And don't forget that Dr. Franks' claim to fame when they hired him was cloning. The way things went down between Dr. Franks and the princess actually might explain the later interaction with the envoys. You see, I think Dr. Franks kept it to himself that the princess communicated with him telepathically. He was the only survivor, and if he didn't mention it, then it's possible Ape would never know that the princess could communicate with humans in addition to other Klaxosaurs. Thus, when the envoys visit her to demand her surrender, and she begins speaking to them telepathically, the short one is shocked. And not just shocked, but alarmed. In fact, it's the moment he realizes she is speaking to them that he reveals he is armed and tries to attack her. 
If his and the others' identities as Klaxosaurs is a secret, or if some other aspect of them or their plans that she may know about must remain secret, then he can't risk that being revealed to the others. He has to attack her. Either he will kill her and stop the communication, or she will assume they are there to assassinate her and she will kill the rest of them, leaving no witnesses. The secret stays safe. Thus, at the end, when she knocks aside the mask, she may be looking down on her own kin, but one who dresses like a human, lives like a human, conspires with humans. No wonder she calls him a wannabe human with such derision. And the masks may not only be there to cover their identities. We see that the princess communicates telepathically. She doesn't speak. It seems reasonable to assume that the males in her society might also communicate telepathically. They might also not speak. Thus, the masks are not just a cover, they're a communicator. They translate their thoughts into speech so that they can interact with humans. I'm sure you have noticed how robotic and machine-like their voices sound, right? Perhaps they can't communicate telepathically with humans. Perhaps only the princess is that strong. Thus, the short one is surprised when she can speak to the rest of the envoys. Now, why should she be able to communicate with humans telepathically? We understand why she can with other Klaxosaurs, and indeed that explains how they can coordinate the way they do, but aren't humans a different sort of thing altogether? Well, this is an idea we have floated before, but I'm going to go ahead and say that no, not really. Dr. Franks had a bad feeling about discovering that Klaxosaurs had the same XX chromosomes as human females. That bad feeling of his is well-founded. The humanness of these chromosomes, uh, and the princess herself, and the shapes in the cores of Klaxosaurs suggest that humans and Klaxosaurs are cousins, or even closer. This may be what the ape in Ape Council was referencing that humans and Klaxosaurus share a common ancestor, just as humans and all other apes share a common ancestor. It would be a way of saying that, hey, we come from the same place, we can make common cause. In other words, Klaxosaurus society are humans or near humans who diverged from their surface brethren to form a subterranean nation sometime in the past. As Dr. Frank says, they found the remains of an ancient civilization. The male Klaxosaurus are basically in rebellion, they came to the surface once human civilization and technology progressed to a certain point, and then recruited their human cousins to remake their advanced society on the surface. They probably knew very well it would eventually mean war with their former queen. And actually, I suspect that's not all they knew. See, I think it's possible that all this stuff happening in the world with the ecological crisis actually happened already in the distant past. Klaxosaur society originally might have looked a lot like plantation society, Tapping into magma energy may have started to turn their world to desert, and a potential solution was to move underground next to the source. They abandoned the surface and took their civilization subterranean, allowing the world above to recover. The Klaxosaur forms that we are familiar with are an adaptation to that underground environment. I've said before how much the ones we've seen could easily double as mining equipment. The humans they left above would eventually advance into the civilization we are familiar with, None the wiser that an older and more advanced people lived miles below. Ape then knows about this possibility when they begin the mining operations, and perhaps even plan on it forcing the world to turn to them in the ensuing crisis. Of course, they might have moved underground for another reason. Proximity to magma helps, I'm sure, but what if they were also trying to get away from something as well? See, the biological immortality that plantation society currently enjoys 
is probably something that the ancient Klaxosaur civilization also figured out. That's why Ape even knows to research it in the first place. And just like the modern society, they'd rather give up their cities and the life they know than give up the immortality. But that type of immortality has a drawback. It halts evolution. Evolution works by passing traits that survive long enough to reproduce into subsequent generations. All organisms on Earth are in a type of slow motion battle royale, each competing to change in ways that counteract the other organisms that limit or threaten them, who change in turn. Prey species evolve to run faster or hide better, predators evolve to use venom or stealth, and plants evolve to gather more sunlight or strangle their neighbors. Even bacteria and viruses evolve to spread further and reproduce faster, and other organisms must evolve to meet this threat. But what if you stop evolving to meet that threat? The immortality in the plantation adults, and thus possibly something similar in Klaxosaurs, appears to work by halting aging, by stopping the telomere loss and cell function decrease that brings on old age. It is a way of invoking a type of biological stasis. Perhaps you can live forever if nothing interferes, but you can still die by being shot or being crushed or catching disease. New variations on diseases could crop up all the time, but by being locked in stasis, you are potentially at risk from one good epidemic. And we've had a lot of indication that disease is a worry in plantation society. The children, who are not in biological stasis, come down with something they call child fever. When Squad 13 is left alone after the Grand Crevasse, several of them get sick off and on. And when Zotome gets loose in the city, he appears to bring some kind of infection to the lady who hosts him for the day. Thus, he is chastised by the medical staff that show up. Thus, the official refused to shake his hand earlier in the day, and another citizen fled from him. This is why the caretaking of the parasites is largely automated. It's to prevent contact between them. And, like I pointed out, Dr. Franks refers to Mistletine as a quarantine zone. So perhaps it wasn't just the havoc that magma mining wreaked on the surface that caused Klaxosaurs to go underground. Perhaps they were also fleeing the ever-changing biology of the surface world and the diseases that might threaten them in their state of stasis. One thing we've never seen Klaxosaurs do is retreat from the Franks. Is it possible that all the Klaxosaurs sent against the surface are on a one-way journey? That they can't return because of the possibility of infection? Even if that isn't the case, the risk of disease does seem like it's a problem for plantation society if we're right about the drawback to biological immortality. If only there was some way to get rid of these pesky bodies and their biological vulnerabilities altogether. Oh, we've had a suggestion for that too. Our two remaining ape council members, who may be Klaxosaurs, suggest to the others that they will soon be freed from the shackles of their shells, by which they mean their bodies. What does that mean? Well, during the Grand Crevasse battle, something similar is said before the plantations are blown up. But just before that, we have an indication that the upload for that plantation is nearly complete. We guessed then that this might be a type of mind upload, that the adults of that plantation had their mental selves uploaded to some other form, and therefore would be free of the cages of their bodies once they were blown up. Considering the society has the technology to alter memories and to artificially induce their body's reward center, it doesn't seem a stretch to think they'd be capable of capturing and simulating consciousness. In fact, the XY Klaxosaurs in our council may have already done that for themselves, 
which could be an alternate explanation for their mechanical voices and the inability to hear the princess's telepathy. Either way, converting humankind into a non-biological state would solve the issue of disease for all time. A great plan, but there's still one problem. You still need magma energy, and that still brings you into conflict with the Klaxosaur society below. There will be no safety in converting everyone to a non-biological immortal while those below still exist. Thus, you need to win the war or eradicate that society before your plan can be completed. So that brings us to the final piece of the puzzle, whatever is in the Grand Crevasse. The fact that Ape knew something was there again suggests they have a familiarity with Klaxosaurs that goes beyond what a human could reasonably be expected to know. If you remember, Goto made a comment during the assault that the dome which covered it looked like it was man-made. Does this suggest that the crevasse was sealed by humans? Or by some ancient human-like people? We know the giant hand is what is down there. Presumably it's not just a disembodied arm. After all, we see a pair of these hands in the new opening. Its look is unmistakably that of the Klaxosaurs, so it's their creation, yet they are defending the dome that seals it in. Are they protecting it? Or are they guarding it? And why is it so obviously the hand of a human? Now, I don't have a definite answer for everything about this giant. Um, I would guess that the creation referenced in this conversation is this very hand and the giant it is presumably attached to. Thus, I would guess that they assaulted the Grand Crevasse to gain access to it, and also that it cannot be controlled without a key. The princess is one such key. It's a weapon she can control, but for some reason she chooses not to. They engineered Zero Two as the other key, and they plan to use her to activate it, control it, and make the remaining Klaxosaurs feel the pain of having their Earth scorched by their own creation. Now, I'm not sure how Ringhorny relates to all this. Um, it may be some part of activating or enabling the giant hand, or it may be related to the mind uploading possibility. Either way, if they succeed in eliminating Klaxosaur society, they will be the sole civilization left on Earth, and they can safely transition to a post-human state where even disease does not threaten their immortality. The question that remains at the end of the speculative theory is, why break away from Klaxosaur society in the first place? Do the males chafe under being ruled by their queen? A power struggle that they lost? Did they create the giant as a weapon or tool that the princess then refused to use? Did they grow to fear the surface humans and propose to wipe them out, only to be countered by the princess? Did they fear the risk presented by their evolutionary stagnation? Did they see that humans had the ability for consciousness uploading and so they joined them? Well, if they were in rebellion against their hive society because of being the lowest caste, then there is going to be quite the surprise if they end up fomenting a rebellion in the lowest caste in their plantation society. Indeed, having the parasites rise up against them or break away from them is exactly the kind of mirroring we have come to expect from this series. Now, if this XY Klaxosaur theory is on target, and they were organized roughly the way a beehive society is organized, the loss of their male drones would present the Klaxosaurs with the dilemma. Perhaps they have held on to the ability to reproduce, but only between queen and drones. If all the males vacate, then that poses a problem, no? Ape Council can win merely by attrition in that case. Klaxosaurs would need to seek a way to replenish if they cannot otherwise. I've wondered it before, but is it possible that that's what's going on with the layman class attack on Plantation 13 during the Grand Crevasse battle? 
We see at the end that it is full of golden cores, but no Klaxosaur exists around them. This in the same episode that we see a broken up core with something human-like inside. Is it possible that this is one way that Klaxosaurs can be created, or even the normal way, by putting a human into those cores? Did they break open Plantation 13 and pour Klaxosaurs in there to raid it for its inhabitants, and then convert them into new Klaxosaurs? The way the giant hand either destroyed or retrieved those cores suggests that they didn't really want them just hanging around where Plantation Society could get their hands on them. But maybe that's a more desperate way of shoring up their numbers. Maybe they would prefer to have their males back. Or at least some male. And that could pose an interesting dilemma. This goes back to the reference to Jean-Baptiste Lamarck and his evolutionary theory. He believed that organisms' efforts to adapt to their environment could strengthen or weaken the organs or systems involved, and that this change would be passed to their offspring. I said that this reminded me the most of the modern study of epigenetics, which, and again I'm oversimplifying, uh, which involves the idea that the same DNA can express in different ways, sometimes based on external or environmental factors. If humans and Klaxosaurs are closely related, or even have the same basic DNA, then the different ways they present could simply be a case of epigenetics in action. Exaggerated, of course, but the same basic idea. This would explain how Zero Two could present more and more as a human over time without it actually changing her base DNA. After all, it seems that they really need her DNA to be a close match to the princesses, so they wouldn't alter her at that level. Hero actually presents the opposite side to Zero Two. His human DNA is presenting more and more as a Klaxosaur. The fact that they can grow toward each other by itself suggests their shared genetics. But now, the interesting dilemma. What if a sufficiently transformed Hero could actually stand in for the missing males? What if he, too, could count as an XY Klaxosaur? An enormous amount of possibilities open from this. Would the Klaxosaur princess pursue him as a replacement for her society? Would Hero and Zero Two be able to start their own Klaxosaur-esque civilization? Or could the way each of them has grown toward the other mean they could found some third middle ground society? Are they all that's left after Ape and the Princess devastate the world in a grand showdown? Or maybe Ape discovers what Hero is and tries to eliminate him outright? Or would his XY Klaxosaur state mean that the Princess would take him and Zero Two into her society entirely, standing against Ape and humanity proper? Perhaps they can bridge the gap between the worlds and negotiate some compromise. Or perhaps we get Armageddon, and they separate to each take up as the head of what remains of the two civilizations. Zero Two becoming the new princess, and Hero taking up the mantle as Rain King in truth. However it shakes out, the pattern of rebirth and restored fertility dictates that this story does not end with humanity or Klaxosaurs left unable to reproduce. Both societies may have strayed far, far from nature and into artifice, but it won't end with nature being eliminated from the game entire. Instead, it will swing back. The XY Klaxosaurs may have left their society and doomed them, and their attempts to convert all humanity to immortals may doom them as well. But the answer for both civilizations might be right there in Squad 13, with an upstart XY Klaxosaur and his feisty future queen. They may be the mistletoe, that brings the green back to springtime. 
title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle, script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly On Red, and a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.